This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. In the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Nine, you are tuned to 102.7 Triple R, or maybe you're streaming via rrr.org.au. This is uh, Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty, everything coastal and marine and... All of that kind of yeah. stuff. I'm Bron Burton. I'm Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I'm... Um, not, a, not at Golden Plains, I think, is the answer to that I'm, question. I'm not at Golden Plains, but I may as well be. Or at the Port Ferry Folk Festival. <laughs> or the Port Ferry Folk Festival, or... Um, as my dear sister Sandy is at Worm Adelaide. Oh, right, yeah, of course. It's all happening this weekend. Yeah. But we're in Melbourne and it's a nice long weekend to be here. Yeah, it's a lovely weekend Doing to be here. stuff. It would fantastic Moomba and all of those things. And I'll go and see some fireworks tomorrow night. And if you're listening to this from, um, from Meredith... Or surrounds. I reckon they're all just waking up at Meredith. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if anyone would be listening at Meredith. Did you hear the live broadcast last night? It was. Oh no, you didn't because you were out. But I did. It was fantastic. Absolutely amazing. Was um, Nana Cherry on last night? Yeah, it was great. And I had. Uh, I, I was so incredibly lucky to see her at Hamer Hall on a Friday night. I didn't realise it was her first trip to Melbourne. Mm. Mm. So that came uh, out in the interview yesterday. Uh, which was live from, from Golden Plains anyway. Uh, but, yeah, I'm sure she'll come out again. Yeah. Just astounding. Anyway, thank you very much, Tim, for Vital Bits, uh, as always. Excellent show. Yes. I was about to thank you for playing Nancy Griffith, and then I realised that I was listening to PBS on the way in and not Triple R. <laughs> <laughs> We're all part of the community radio family, That's aren't right. we, Dr. Beach? Yeah. Uh, so, yes, thank you very much, Tim. And thank you, Tim, for uh, all those wonderful female artist tracks. It is International Women's Day, and a little bit more on that in a minute. On our program today... We have a um, 
A very lovely female scientist from Warrnambool, Dr Julie Monden, is on the blower from Fair Warrnambool, from the west of our state, and she's going to talk to us about the trip she's just made to Antarctica. She's had a four- or five-year project continuing down there, looking at effluent from the bases. So Australia has the bases, Casey, Mawson and Davis, and Julie has just been down to one of those um, along with her PhD student. And they've been looking at the effects of the sewage outfall, which is coming from those stations. Of course, there are people there. Um, and looking at biomarkers. Let's find out what biomarkers are from Julie. Mm. In about That'll be in about oh, five or six minutes, I reckon. So hang on and listen to Julie. So many questions. Uh, yeah, so this many is going to be a very interesting one. Yeah. Uh, we are then going to be joined in studio by Captain Winshift. Our very own Captain Winshift from the Port Melbourne Yacht Club is calling in on his way to the bakery, or it might be on the way home from the bakery, to tell us about what's been happening in the small boating world. Great. Then we're going to be joined in studio by Graham Patterson, who has put together a couple of absolutely sensational coastal guides. He sent them to us and said, I wonder if you might be interested in having a chat about these. And I looked at them and went, oh, yes, please. So one's called Coastal Guide to Nature and History, Port Phillip Bay, and then there's a sequel. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm calling it a sequel. A sequel. It's, kind of, it's, a, it's a guide in its own right. Coastal Guide to Nature and History 2. the return of the Coastal Guide to Nature and History of Port Phillip Bay. Western Port Strikes Back. <laughs> Western Port Strikes Back. Morning to Peninsula's Ocean Shore. It is about Western Port, Phillip Island and French Island. So Graham's going to be coming into studio and talking about these guides. Can you believe it? He not only researched all of the information to put together these guides. He actually, he walked the walk. He walked the lot. He walked the whole lot, all 580, I think it is, 580 kilometres of coastline. <laughs> He's walked. <laughs> Absolutely He's standing fantastic. out in the green room with his walking sticks and... No, he's not. <laughs> he's trying to get Tim into it. I think he should get Tim into it. Yeah, this is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to talking to Graham. And then to close the show, we've got a bit of news, um, but particularly celebrating today being International Women's Day, I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about Eugenie Clark, Professor Eugenie Clark, who mm-hmm. she, she passed away a couple of weeks ago, uh, and she was a pioneer in marine research. She actually pioneered uh, using scuba for underwater research, um, but ended up becoming uh, a big uh, advocate and um, spokesperson for shark conservation through her research okay. and, and really started to turn the tide in terms of how... Uh, we globally view sharks and until she started to do her piece of research they were considered to be kind of dumb aggressive animals without any intelligence and and she realized through the research she was doing that that was far from the case so uh, amazing amazing woman and someone who we're going to pay tribute to today cool and that'll be towards the end of the show probably around 10 to 10 yes yeah. Weather. Yeah, let's do some weather um, out there today. Oh, by the way, it must have been hard for balloons this morning. I noticed around <laughs> in the city there said to be balloons landing all over the place and I could hear sirens in the distance. And really? I, don't know. I saw a couple yeah. flying overhead on my way but in. really low one almost looked like it was going to land there on was a, Hoddle Street. There was a, yeah, there was a really low one in Richmond. Yeah. I wondered what that was all about. I think down in Hyatt Street. Anyway, watch out for balloons. <laughs> they're falling out of the sky. Um, they're not. They're in, not falling out of the sky. No, they're not. They're not. I'm being alarmist here. Uh, in the city today, <coughs> pardon me. I beg your dear sweet pardon. Uh, 14 degrees to 24 degrees. Cloudy light winds becoming west to southwest 15 to 20k in the evening, then becoming light in the late evening. Uh, tomorrow, top of 23, possible shower. Tuesday, 23 again, partly cloudy. Wednesday, 25 and sunny. 
Friday, looking ahead to Friday, it's going to be partly cloudy with a very, very little chance of rain and 19 degrees. And then by the weekend, next weekend, it's going to be 21 degrees. Uh, the tides today, in case you're heading out, it was low tide at the heads of about 20 minutes ago, 8.43am, and it's going to be high tide just after 3 o'clock this afternoon. Brilliant. Thank you, Dr Beach. That's a great pleasure. A couple of quick news items, and then we're going to listen to some Nina Cherry. Can't get enough of Nina Cherry at the moment. Uh, this is uh, a presser that's come out from the Australian Marine Conservation Society. They're very upset about decision made by the Australian government to increase its quotas for the iconic old man of the sea, the Orange Ruffy, and uh, long-time listeners for Marinara, and, in fact, anyone who's interested in conservation, particularly fish that live to a ripe old age, as Orange Ruffy do. Sometimes known as sea perch in the shops. Yeah, they're known by a few different mm. names, and particularly once they're carved up and filleted and it's difficult to tell what they are. But uh, it's been a species of concern for a really long time. And um, so what the Australian government's done, they've increased the quota from 25 tonnes to 465 tonnes. So in percentage terms, it's a 1,860% increase in fishing for this species, which is still considered vulnerable. I want to talk to our John Ford about that. Yeah. So they're justifying it by saying that it's... Uh, it's in a particular zone, so this is the eastern zone uh, so that has been opened up to fishing. But I guess it's a, a broader philosophical point of view that the AMCS are putting out, saying that look, this is this is a, a fish that we're really concerned about. We've been concerned about it for a really long time. There's a method of fishing, which is the issue as well, because they are such deep um, animals that they're caught using uh, deep sea bottom trawlers, and there are all sorts of issues there in terms of damage to uh, to the surrounding ecosystem. Was this one of the species that I seem to remember that there are hot spots so that, you know, that the fishing boats hang out in particular areas and all the fish tend to congregate there so they can actually harvest I hate to use that word but you know, rip from the ocean fish which might be coming from thousands of square kilometres just by hanging out in one area. That's right and the other issue with Orange Ruffy is that it's just, and I mentioned how old they live, they live over 100 years mm. and there's an issue with the fact that they need to get to a certain age before they can start breeding so if you're wanting to increase quota on any particular type of fish I'm not really sure that Orange Ruffy is the way to go anyway AMCS very concerned about this and, and putting out a presser so thank you for that and for sending that our way. A uh, little positive news item, um, and then we'll listen to some music, is some work that Parks Vic are doing to uh, to try and look at um, getting under control a species of sea urchin. And uh, the header says invasive sea urchin. I was really worried that we had a, a new... Um, Foreigner. Yeah, introduced species. It's actually a native species, but there are some real issues. It's in East Gippsland, and the numbers have gone slightly out of control. So it's the black spine sea urchin um, in the Beware Reef Marine Sanctuary. So Parks Vic do great work in monitoring Mm -hmm. um, population of all sorts of creatures within our protected marine areas, and they're a bit concerned about uh, the numbers of these particular sea urchins. So they're going out and getting involved with um, friends groups, and I guess I really wanted to give these guys a plug because they do such amazing works. This is the Friends of Beware Reef volunteers. They've got together with Deakin Uni and Parks Victoria and um, looking at preparing some sites to monitor the urchins and testing methods for their control and trying to get them under control. Okay. So there you go. Good on you guys. We've got uh, Mark Roderick on the blower next week. He's going to be talking about Festival of the Sea so we can ask him some more about this work as well. Indeed. Uh, We just had a call, Dr Beach, Mm -hmm. from someone who used to be an observer on boats, he was he was calling in relation to um, our, our little piece on Orange Ruffy and the Australian government decision to increase quotas. He thinks it's not a great idea. 
not a great decision. But right, okay. uh, but he used to be an observer on boats on on the Australia on the fishing boats that used to go out there and look for them. And he said the issue is that they the the fish the orange ruffy tend to congregate around sea mounts. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, and so that the the fishing vessels that go out basically just go out and they go backwards and forwards over you know the, over. Right. They just continue. Uh, but he said the biggest issue is illegal fishing with this as well, with Orange Ruffy. Well, thank you for calling in. Yeah, thank you. Um, Antarctica. Yes. We're going to turn our attention to that cold place now and some of the changes that we might be bestowing on it by our activity down there. Um, researchers from Australia go to visit bases such as Mawson, Davis and Casey. And, of course, when you've got human beings in pristine places, we have to manage their waste. We don't want to, you know, to dump it out into the environment, that is, the raw sewage. And we have very kindly on the phone with us now Dr Julie Monden, who is from Deakin University at Warrnambool. And Julie, you have just returned from Antarctica, have you not? Uh, yes, I have, yes. And it, you're quite right, it is very cold at the moment. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, well, Brian, looks like you want to Oh, ask. look, Julie, I just... Um, thank you very much for being on our program. My first... Uh, when, when Dr Beach mentioned that you were going to be on and told us what you were going to be talking about, the first thing that jumped into my head was sewage outfall in Antarctica. And it was just something that I'd never really stopped to think about. I guess I always uh, had the assumption that any human waste that was produced down there was sort of appropriately bagged up and taken and away. Brought home. That's but, right. but clearly not the case. Well, no, it's not the case, but... Uh, for the Australian bases, it is the case for some of the other bases, but they are very small bases. So we have, we have, ex- with the exclusion of America, some of the largest bases down there. So lots and lots of people with lots and lots of toilet waste. And um, under the guideline treaties, uh, we are able to uh, process that waste and able to release the liquid component. This is a lovely breakfast topic. <laughs> Uh, and and that's what we've been doing. So up until, say, five years ago at Davis Station, we had a secondary treatment plant, very similar to what you might experience in Melbourne, for example. But because it's extremely cold, as you can imagine, and the energy requirement of running that, unfortunately, it broke down. And so uh, the upshot of that was that we had raw sewage and other water waste going straight out into the bay and so what we were interested in was looking at whether or not that would actually have an effect so even though the bases might have a maximum of 140 people which compared to Melbourne is very very you know low number we we still needed to know whether or not there was a, a footprint there from that sewage waste so that's what we've been looking at. And Julie, you've been using what you mentioned to me was an indicator species, was it? Or was it a biomarker? Is that how you described it? Yes, we've, we've been using an indicator species, which is the emerald rock cod or the Antarctic rock cod, which is a really, it's a lovely little animal that lives in and around the coastal waters and it has a very, very small home range. And so we're using... We're looking at those animals in the same way that um, a pathologist would, a human pathologist would, and we're looking for changes in the animals, and those changes are known as the biomarkers. So what we are finding is there are changes in their liver, for example. So the liver becomes the biomarker, if you like, for uh, evidence of exposure and effect from the sewage. So you're taking... So you sacrifice a small number of these 
Todd? Unfortunately, at, at the moment, we do sacrifice a, a very small number, but uh, hopefully... Uh, very soon we will have refined the information that we need and we may just need to then extract blood from the animals. So just take a blood sample and then ideally be able to release them back into the wild. Can you describe what it's like down there at the moment? It's very cold and trying to go out and do the field work to, to have a look at these cod. I, I, I get this image of you in a huge fluffy jacket and I believe you're down there with a PhD student of yours at the moment uh, as well? Yes, yes, I uh, was with a PhD student who is just about to graduate, which is very exciting. So Patricia Corbett is that student and she's been working with me on this project for the last four years. And uh, to, to be able to go and collect these animals is is not that easy. So it's a mixture of... Uh, standing on a nice bank and actually fin fishing or cutting a hole in the sea ice and then fishing through that sea ice or putting down fish traps where we can and we've also uh, had the opportunity to have divers help us collect the fish as well. So it's, it's, it's a big effort from everybody. Why have you chosen this particular fish as your indicator species? What's different? about this animal to anything else that might be out there, like an alga, for example. Well, I mean, there are obvious differences, but, but what, are the, what are the advantages of this, this fish? The advantages of uh, a, a vertebrate and this particular type of fish is that it's a higher-order um, consumer. So what that means is that it's eating a whole range of smaller organisms, in, including algae, by the way. So they're quite, uh, they're, I suppose you could liken them to flathead. So they'll basically grab hold of anything that will fit in their mouth and they'll eat. Now because these animals live in a very narrow home range, we think it's about up to 600 metres home range. It means that we can then look at what those animals are feeding on and compare that with animals at increasing distance from the wastewater outfall. And that gives us a gradient, if you like, of exposure and effect. So it helps to fine-tune exactly what's present in the environment by these animals actually taking that material up and in some cases assimilating it into their tissue. So we've looked for uh, sewage nitrogen, which they do have in their muscle tissue. We've looked at metals. And another group who we've uh, provided samples for have actually found uh, flame-retardant chemicals in our little fish as well. So they're one of the few organisms that has an antifreeze, if you like, in their blood as well as a fire-retardant at the moment. Where would this be coming from, Julia? Any ideas? Uh, It's coming from bases. So it's coming from the research base. So anywhere you've got um, humans living in an environment, uh, we will be releasing all sorts of chemicals. So it's not just our toilet waste, but it's our pharmaceuticals. It's the chemicals that are in the carpets and the paints and the plastics. So it's, it's desorbing from and being released, we think, from those bases. So not only are you being able to identify artificial or, or human molecules of human origin in the fish but are you seeing an effect on the fish is that um interfering with their lifestyles are they having shorter lifespans for example moving to different ranges hanging out near the sewerage more because they want to eat Mm. the goodies (laughs) 
I think you've nailed it there. They do like hanging out near the sewage. There are some really good goodies there. Um, there's lots of nutrients there, and so that's bringing in the small micro beasties and mac small little macroinvertebrates. And, and, of course, our fish are then eating those, so it's drawing them in around that size. Um, but ultimately, the, the fish that we've seen, those that are living in and around the outfall site do show evidence of um, necrosis in the liver, uh, problems with their gill structure. So there are some quite clear changes to the health of the animal uh, that is living closest to the wastewater outfall. Are there any other obvious differences around that wastewater outfall as well? So the ones that we might first think of as algal blooms? No, no. Interestingly, there, there's not. And there's no... Uh, from work that um, Johnny Stark, Dr Johnny Stark from the Antarctic Division has done, there's no real evidence of a change or significant change in the uh, very small beasts that live in and around the um, outfall site in the sediment. So it, it's really a factor of uh, bioaccumulation, so an increase in the concentration of these chemicals as you move up to, through the food chain. And often we'll find that it's the higher-level organisms that actually show us what the true impact is. Julie, do you think the, the lack of algal blooms is a consequence of the temperature, the fact that it is so cold down there, and, and particularly with algal blooms, and, of course, they're not algae, they're cyanobacteria? Mm. Is, is, that, is it just purely a, a case of the physical conditions not being good enough for... Well, not good enough, but you know what I mean, appropriate for, for these sorts of blooms to take off? Well, it, it may well be. And uh, also the concentration of nutrients that's, that are being released is not high if you compare that to any, any other outfall on mainland Australia. Th these are very low concentrations. But we're dealing with um, a group of organisms that have, because of that incredible cold, very, very low metabolic rates. So they're very slow in everything that they do. And so what we were interested in to see, to see was whether or not it only takes a very small concentration of contaminant loading to actually have an effect. So it's not enough to show big blooms, algal blooms, but it is enough to show over you know, longer-term exposure what's happening in the animals themselves rather than the algae. Julie, what, are you, what do you hope or what are you planning on doing with this, uh, with this data and, and um, this research? What, what's the next step for you? Well, um, the evidence that we've collected from this work has, has actually led to the development of a full tertiary-level wastewater treatment facility at Davis Station. They're putting that together now in Hobart. They're building it and then they'll transport it down and install it. And the wonderful thing about this is it's the first uh, fully tertiary treatment system down in Antarctica and the water that will be released is, will be potable water. So in theory, it's, it's drinkable. Julie, thank you. This has been fascinating. And um, we'd like to get you back in the future to give us an update on perhaps how that tertiary treatment plant's going and whether all that's gone ahead. But Julie Monden, Dr Julie Monden from Deakin University School of Life and Environmental Sciences at Warrnambool. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Bron. Thanks, Julie. Absolutely fantastic. It was. Fascinating. Yeah. I had no idea we had, there was an outfall down there. Yeah, I, I assume they bagged it up and brought it back. Yeah, and interesting different approaches with different governments running different research programs down there as well. I wonder if there's there's some 
interesting politics involved in that. I bet there is. Mm. And how's the fact that you can detect flame retardant chemicals oh. in these fish from it's the carpets we've got there? Frightening. We are joined, and I say we, being Bron Burton, Dr Burton and myself, are joined in the studio by our fair Captain Winshift. Happy New Year, Steve Howden. We haven't seen you all year. I've been sneaking on by telephone, though. Well, you have been sneaking on by telephone, that's right. But I haven't seen your fair face for a long time. It's nice to be back here, Bron and Dr B. What a treat to have you in studio. Does this mean that the bay is kind of mirror glass, like don't bother sailing today conditions, or are you doing other stuff? Yes, the weather forecast says, or the bomb says that we're going to have uh, 10 to 15 knots, but I strongly suspect they're lying. (laughs) (laughs) They do. do Wishful thinking, do you think? Wishful Wishful thinking. It looks more like being, if anybody is actually thinking of going out sailing, there will be a bit of breeze, um, but it's likely to be north, northwesterly, backing into the west and then going south and not doing a lot of it. Okay. Mm. So maybe okay sailing conditions in the southern part of the bay, if there are northerlies? Uh, yeah, but there won't be a lot of wind. Okay. That's the main problem. Right. Mm. So, just so have a nice little drift around. Yeah. yeah. Or chill. Or chill. And yeah. Or work on the boat. Right. <laughs> tinker. Tinker, yes. Put, put on triple R and just tinker in the boat. Perfect. That sounds lovely. <laughs> nice thing to do on a long weekend. Excellent. What's What's the forecast for tomorrow? I should have paid more attention when Dr Beach was doing the forecast. Yeah, tomorrow. I can't remember. Oh, well, uh, given my um, moniker of Captain Winshift, I have to embarrassingly tell you I have no idea. That's all right. We can (laughs) rustle the paper and and work it out. Yeah, look at the paper. So what's been, while while Dr Beach is doing that, what's what's been happening in the world of small vessel sailing? Well, Light, light winds tomorrow. Okay. Oh, there we go. More of the same. How lovely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Keep tinkering. But what's Moomba been, parade. There what, we go. What's been happening? Well, last weekend was very interesting down at um, Port Melbourne Yacht Club. We, after doing a bit of research over the year, we discovered we're one of the oldest continuous community sporting clubs in Victoria. Boy. So we had, last weekend, our 125th anniversary. Happy birthday. Thank you. It was really good fun. Um, the committee got together and started tracking down old members from way back in the past, and uh. all sorts of people turned up who'd been helping to build the club and form the community, and it was really, really good fun. Did you get out on the water? <laughs> yeah, we had a regatta, actually, uh, a two-day regatta with um, old sailors from years gone past coming and joining in, and it was terrific. Old sailors never die. They just uh, return to the Port Melbourne Yacht Club. That's exactly <laughs> right. Actually, on that note, I, you were talking about fish before. We, after sailing on Saturday, we were sitting on the deck watching out over the bay. It was a beautiful evening. And then tacking towards us was an old... Port Phillip fishing boat. It's not a cooter boat, but actually an old Port Phillip fishing boat with its gaff sails up, being sailed beautifully. And it was one of the old fishermen who used to moor just off Port Melbourne Yacht Club, did a sail by for us. I've got a beautiful oh. image in my mind. It was that. absolutely spectacular. And these guys were sailing the boat so beautifully. It was uh, really quite spectacular, actually. Something to behold. Mm. Mm. Anything exciting coming up in the near future? Uh, nothing terribly exciting. Most of the major regattas are over, um, but lots and lots of club racing and sailing all over the bay. Okay. And if listeners are interested in taking part, uh, when's your next try sailing day? That is in November, okay, I believe. Not, yeah, not, not long since we had one. Mm. Mm. 
They but, are good things, though. So. But if uh, if someone's out there and listening and maybe just tuned in, heard you for the first time, because we, we kind of promote what you do. Oh, good. It, it makes it possible for people to get out there. You don't have to be part of... You don't have to own an expensive boat. You don't no. have to have 15 years of, you know, being brought up sailing with the family and all that kind of stuff. If anyone's interested in just getting on a boat and seeing what it's about and then taking part... It's been remarkable, actually, Bron. We, we're getting local... Uh, residents in Port Melbourne and from people all over Melbourne just coming down and joining in and it's been really really good so we're embracing that as much as we can that's great and so that you can do that you don't need to wait till November to do that absolutely not right <laughs> no, come on down and we'll we'll take people sailing and, and what's the best way for people to get in touch with you just to get with they, Port Melbourne Port Melbourne Yacht Club pmyc.asn.au mm-hmm. um, or just search for Port Melbourne Yacht Club on the web and um, come down and see us and we'll Put them in the water. Right. And Preferably indeed. in a boat. <laughs> and, and indeed, for many sailing clubs around the bay, people can do that, can't they? They can, if rock if up, you're contact them. any end of the bay, um, the best thing to do is to jump on probably the Yachting Victoria website. Mm-hmm. And there are yacht clubs all over the bay, um, from great big, you know, gold-plated ones down to lots and lots of clubs like ours where just small dinghy clubs where people have fun. And you don't have to dress like Thurston Howell III in order to get out there. And but... <laughs> do I people? I, I really hope that we don't have many people like that listening to Triple R. You know, years and years and years ago... We when might. I, oh, oh, I don't want to exclude that as part of our audience. <laughs> I used to know someone who dressed very much like Thurston Howell III. He was uh, a lovely uh, lecturer at, at part of the university where I went. And uh, he, he clearly loved his sailing used to rock up to university lectures all dressed up like he was about to get on the SS Minnow it was fabulous outstanding yeah thanks Captain Winship for coming in on your way to the bakery and sharing your thoughts with us good to be here again great and we'll catch up with you soon probably on the on the phone Excellent. Yes. Now, many of us are pretty confident that we know the coastline around Port Phillip Bay and Western Port. Is that the case for you, Dr Beach? I know it fairly well, but I'm not completely intimate with all parts of it. Yeah. I think once you get to our age, you feel like you've got a fair idea about what's what's around the various embayments. We've got a few miles under our belt. We do. But uh, I'm guessing that neither you nor I or many, many of the people listening uh, would know it as well as our next guest. Graham Patterson's written two guides on the coastline that surrounds Port Phillip Bay and Western Port. Now, to prepare himself for this task, he walked the entire 580-kilometre coastline of both embayments, including Phillip and French Islands. He walked around the whole lot. So with great pleasure, we welcome Graham to Triple R to talk about what inspires him so much about Port Phillip and Western Port and what's in these great new publications. Good morning, Graham. Good morning. Welcome to Triple R. Welcome to Radio Marinara. Thanks. It's good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. Um, how did you get to be so interested in Port Phillip Bay and Western Port? I've read that you're predominantly a physics teacher. Where, uh, did, where did the love for the coastline come into things for you? Well, it's not work. <laughs> um, I was a bushwalker from way back and... Decades ago, I made a decision that, I, you know, a project was going to be walking around the coast of Victoria. And um, so, from time to time, ever since I've been doing it, and I've still got quite a few hundred k's to go <laughs> before I finish, but along the way I got distracted by, you know, looking up information about what I was seeing, uh, the geology, animals and plants, local history, and... So really Port Phillip and Western Port are special because they're close to home and... Um, 
And I can imagine you being a teacher, you want to share those experiences exactly. with people. So it's, right. it's a great yeah. thing to write these fantastic yeah. coastal guides. And I think that, you know, if people know about the coast, I mean, you have to know it to love it and be able to have your say about the issues um, <laughs> that are affecting the coast. This, you've got a great um, list of, uh, I guess, uh, quotes, but um, great things that people have said about your books on, on the backs of, all, of both of them. And what you just said there is uh, something I think Neil Blake mentioned, that it's, it's the knowledge that comes first. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, if it's just some amorphous something out there, it's not going to um, excite you. No, that's right. Now, the, the guides um, have got everything in there, and I, I would see it as a bit of a combination of there's a bit of Lonely Planet feel to them. Um, <laughs> no restaurants or hotels. No, no, no. I was about to say, yeah, with the exception of that. <laughs> no, that's right. But, it but there's, there's a few indications about rave parties here. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a bit of Indigenous history. There's geology, uh, local history. Uh, there's some rocky shore field guides at the back, which are great. If you're sort of wandering down to the beach and wondering what the various creatures are living in the intertidal zone, you can. It's all in there. Um, origin of coastal town names, which is which is the uh, part that I really loved, and and uh, and settlement as well. How various coastal towns came to be settled. Um, there's a page about legendary William Buckley, and uh, even a page explaining how tidal circles work. How did you decide what to put in, and did you have to leave anything out? Uh, well, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Just whatever you want to put in I was self-published, so I didn't have an editor saying, cut that out, cut that out, so it's probably... <laughs> Self-published and self-edited. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, well, I got some people to help edit it before I put it out, but yeah. I'm, I'm just looking at a bit now on French Island, which I want to ask you more about French Island itself. I've never been there, but I'm just reading the description of Tortoise Head. Tortoise Head was named on Beralier's chart from Grant's 1801 expedition. See page six. It is an example of a tombolo an island that has been joined to the mainland by a strip of sand. Just reading that wants to be, makes me want to have these and read the whole read lot more. and then go and explore it. <laughs> well, that's it. French, um, French Island I have never been to. It's, yeah, it's one I of love these, it. I, I can imagine. Can, can you just tell us a little bit about French Island? I, I guess you know it pretty well. Uh, well, um, it was named by uh, French explorers. Um, they called it French Island before anyone else knew that it was actually an island and they were very fair you know just after the revolution they gave the name english island to philip island but that didn't stick (laughs) ah really so philip island used to be known as english island well only by the french (laughs) (laughs) i had no idea about that either Uh, it didn't last Uh, but it's a it's it's basically a um well, it was settled as a farming area, but now half of it is national park. Um, uh, Long nosed potteroos has got a stronghold there. Um, it's people arrive on French Island from the ferry and they get off and they think, oh, "What are we going to do now? There's nothing here. <laughs> There's a toilet and an information board." And the shop is three kilometres up the road. But there's lots of places to walk. Uh, well, I walked around the coast and there are interesting walks inland and people do go there and uh, bike riders um, go there because there's no cars on the road. Is it possible to circumnavigate French Island on foot? I mean, are there, can you walk around it? Is it are there yeah, I've done it. <laughs> bits that stop you? No. Um, no, it's a lot of there's a lot of salt marsh and mangroves, so you've got to walk behind the mangroves uh, yeah. on the northern coast. Um, but you can do it. I've got up to my knees in mud uh, <laughs> several times. 
We're speaking with Graham Patterson, who has um, produced two fantastic coastal guides to Port Phillip Bay, and now uh, um, a second one, which is on the, the nature and history of Mornington Peninsula's ocean shore, Western Port, Phillip Island, and French Island. What was your um, what what are the, some have been some of the highlights? in researching and preparing this book? Because I imagine there would have been a lot of research that's gone in, on, into this, particularly trying to work out the origins of various coastal town names. Did, did you have to sort of get right into the archives and, and work a lot of this stuff out for yourself? Oh, well, um, your town names are, are a terrible thing to look up because you'll find 15 different versions. Oh. That's an exaggeration of each one. Mm. And... Um, and the archives often don't really help, um, so it was a matter of sort of judging <laughs> the different sources that I was looking at. Um, but, yeah, a lot of historical research. Um, there's local histories written about um, many of the places around the coast, but I had to put them all together, yeah. really. <laughs> yeah. Any particular highlights? I need to keep coming back to the fact that you've, you've we said you walked the walk because you did, yeah. you've, you've walked this entire stretch of coastline. You're the only person we've ever come across. Other people have done it. They yeah. have? Yeah, yeah. There's wow. several. I keep meeting people who've done it. So, oh. oh, we've done that. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. amazing. Yeah. How was it walking? Let's let's just pick randomly. What was it like walking um, around Phillip Island? We've done French Island. We should be give Phillip Island due um, right. due notices or due attention well, as well. English Island is it? So, not many people know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to say it in French. Okay. Ile des Anglais. Ile des Anglais. Okay. Um, Phillip Island's got a very wild southern shore, um, and it's great on a stormy day, mm. waves going everywhere, but it's uh, reasonably easy to walk. Um, sometimes you find yourself on the cliff top with the cows. Um, they don't mind. <laughs> Um, and there's some salt marsh in Phillip Island and there's a lot of lovely beaches around, um, well, on the southern coast and the northern coast, uh, Willamai Beach, of course. Uh, so, yeah, it's a great place to walk. I did most of that with my brother. Okay. <laughs> I was about to ask you, did you do all of this solo or were you accompanied on various legs by different people? So, yeah, your brother. I did a lot of it solo. Uh, Ross, my brother, uh, was with me uh, quite a bit of the time. Uh, he came with me to French Island and uh, I've walked different stretches with different friends and I've got them to drop me off and pick me up. The issue with walking the coast is that you've got to get back. Mm. So um, when I was on my own I often rode my bike to the starting point, dropped it off did the walk. And then uh, had your bike to get yeah, back to your bike car. to get back to the car. Yeah. But uh, uh, on, on the eastern coast of Port Phillip you can just about do it all by public transport. What were some of the challenges in putting these together? Did you need to get permission? You're talking about walking up sort of around Phillip Island. Did you need to get permission from some of the landowners to, to walk around? Um, I have to admit that there's only a small amount of Victoria's coast that's uh, privately owned okay. to the high tide line. 4% is a figure I've read. Um, and so mostly there's a coastal reserve, uh, and so it's quite legitimate to walk. There's places, I, you know, I snuck along the coast. of um, I didn't know half the time whether it was privately owned or publicly owned. And there are places that are not accessible, like um, Point Wilson, um, where there's a big explosives pier, or used to be used for explosives. It's pretty much abandoned now. 
and the sewage farm you need a bird watching permit to walk the coast of the sewage farm on the um, western shore of Port Phillip and did you get that so that you could do it uh no. We'll say yes. <laughs> That's a leading question. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. I snuck across before. <laughs> no, I, poor man. I did this years ago, and I just was doing be arrested. It wasn't to be arrested as he leaves the studio. <laughs> it wasn't People before I run. did. It wasn't until I started researching that I knew all these rules. So I just no, no. hopped in my boat and went across the Werribee River and started walking. <laughs> Graham, in leafing through these books, it's beautiful photographs here of, of all sorts of marine creatures and, and plants in the, on the shoreline. This is, this is wonderful with all, all the names. So uh, these are all yours? You've, you've taken all uh, of them? Most of them are my photos. I've um, got some photos from other people here and there. That's uh, good to see. Yeah, a, I've a, been a in healthy the... representation from the algae here. Right. Well, yep. um, I thought, well, people see these things washed up all the time. And so this now might help them identify some of the common ones. That's yep. right. We're going to give some details in a minute about where you can um, pick one of these up. I thought, Dr Beach, I might just get you to randomly choose any number between one and, let's go, 152, and I'll give you a fascinating fact. And this is, oh this, is, this is an example of how great these books are. You can pretty much flick open to any page, and you mentioned this, Graham, in your foreword about that it, the books aren't meant to be read cover to cover. They're, they're a guide. Yeah. You can pick them up, and if you're interested, Interested in just flicking through and learning some interesting facts, you can do that randomly, or you can yeah, use it wherever you're going to go. Wherever you're going to go. Okay, Bron, go to page seventy-five, please. 75. What's, which book are we in? We're in the. Co- you're going to know what's on page seventy-five. <laughs> you probably do. I'm in the Coastal Guide to um, uh, Port Phillip Bay. So seventy-five, uh, St Kilda. That's a that's great page to go to there, Dr Beach. <laughs> Land around St Kilda was leased for grazing in 1839, only four years after the first settlement of Melbourne. Closest settlement began after 1842, when the first allotments were auctioned. By the 1850s, St Kilda was becoming a fashionable resort for Melbourne's wealthy with a pier and bathing facilities. In 1857, the railway arrived, making St Kilda accessible to many more people. The name of St Kilda came from a schooner, the Lady of St Kilda, which was anchored near here for some time. The original St Kilda is an island off the west coast of Scotland. Uh, uh, I assumed it was named directly after the island off the west coast of Scotland, but yeah, but by a yeah, a lot of there those in between, in between things that you don't. That's know. right. So just the, every page is like this. You've got all these wonderful sort of facts and goes into the depths of where the origins of, of all these wonderful coastal towns and and suburbs have come from. What a great thing to sit down with a cup of tea and just read on <laughs> a, a winter's afternoon before heading out. <laughs> so to the important bit, where can people get these from, Graham? Well, they're in the shops. Um, they're in shops like Reading and Dimmicks, um, but also news agents and um, other bookshops around the coast. And, um, yeah, some of the museums and information centres, and you can buy them through the website coastalguidebooks.net.au. Great. So we'll put all those details on our um, Radio Marinara Facebook page and uh, on the Triple R Radio Marinara webpage as well. Thanks very much. But thank you so much, and thanks for sending these to us because they're just wonderful. It's been delightful, but great. I'm going to mention the names of these books again, Coastal Guide to Nature and History of Port Phillip Bay and Coastal Guide to Nature. I'll just get you to move your iPhone there, Dr. Beach, so I can... See the book? Coastal Guide to Nature and History 2, Mornington Peninsula's Ocean Shore, Western Port, Phillip Island and French Island. It's International Women's Day, Dr Beach. It is. I wanted to pay tribute to Eugenie Clark on this particular day. I know very little about Eugenie Clark, so I'm looking forward to 
hearing about it. Yeah, well, she passed away only a couple of weeks ago and I uh, mentioned at the start of the program she was kind of trailblazing and groundbreaking in two real areas, uh, well, three actually. One was um, her study of poisonous fish. Uh, the second was actually pioneering the use of scuba for underwater research or for marine research and things. Um, this is during the 1940s, so it was actually pre-scuba that she started doing her underwater research using a hooker-type setup. But then when scuba... Um, uh, was was actually invented um, by the U.S. military, I think. She saw that as being a, a perfect um, tool yeah. to extend underwater research. But then, I guess, in the third phase, in terms of the the work that she did, was to uh, bringing to light the intelligence of sharks and really promoting shark conservation. So just a little bit about her. She was uh, born to an American father and Japanese mother, and this is significant, um, a bit further on. And uh, so her father died quite early, and she was supported by her mother and grandparents. But from a really early age, she took her... Uh, she went off to um, with her mum to work in Manhattan and spent her time at the New York Aquarium, which was where she kind of really sort of developed her love of fish. Um, and uh, sort of moving forward to her 20s, she studied zoology uh, at Hunter College and then New York University. And in her mid-twenties, became a research assistant at Scripps Institution of Oceanography in uh, La Jolla in California from uh, 46 to 47. So this was in her mid-twenties, and that was when she learned to dive with gear that um, predated scuba uh, in 1947. So picture this in 1947. I am. I'm getting a wonderful image of it. So she's 25, and uh, she was asked by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to study sea life of the Philippines, but she was detained by the FBI because of concerns about her Japanese heritage. Ah, right. Yeah. Uh, so she couldn't go, but um, she kind of busted through that and at 26 uh, got a job at Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. So then from 26 to 44, she became a member of staff of the American Museum of Natural History. And uh, at age 27, the, um, in 1949, the U.S. Office of Naval Research sent her to islands of South Seas to collect and identify species of poisonous fish. And this is where she learned to free dive. She got a Fulbright scholarship in 51 and uh, continued research in the Red Sea. And uh, her research on live-bearing reproduction of swordtail fish earned her a doctorate from New York University in 1950. So again, we're talking 1950s. You think about the role of what most women would have done would at have that been time. Pretty, a pretty tough ask to be doing what she was doing. That's it. And she became the first person in the United States to carry out artificial insemination experiments on fish in 1950. So she's really cutting edge, really trailblazing. And was this leading into her work on sharks? Yes, it did. So this was uh, in, she was 33 in 1955 and started doing some research work in Florida. And the year that the lab was built, she was asked by a cancer researcher to capture some sharks so she could study their livers. And that led to a creation of a pen for live sharks to become part of this experiment and that was when she suddenly realised sort of observing their behaviour, um, working with lemon sharks in particular uh, that they could push a target in order to receive food and she realised that there was some real intelligence to them and contradicted long held assumptions that sharks lacked intelligence and from that point on she became a really uh, big advocate for, for shark conservation and really tried to turn the tide in terms of global regard for sharks 
And did she continue her research on sharks? She did. So uh, in, at the age of 46, she joined faculty of University of Maryland, became full professor in 1973 at the age of 51, and emeritus professor in 1992 at the age of 70. Um, she continued to make frequent expeditions into the field, and particularly the Red Sea, and she retired from teaching in 1999 at the age of 77. But uh, she continued diving right through to uh, a couple of years before she died. So she dived right through till she was 90. Oh. And... Uh, in, through all of this, I know we're nearly out of time, but through all this process as well, she wrote, um, she was a frequent contributor to National Geographic magazine. Very close friend of David, du- David Dublé, who was um, National Geographic photographer, who yes. was on our program a couple of years ago. She wrote uh, memoirs, Lady with a Spear in 1953, Lady in the Sharks in 1969, and a children's book, Desert Beneath the Sea in 1991, and uh, passed away only a couple of weeks ago, but very close friend of Sylvia Earle, which I'm sure doesn't come as a big surprise to anyone. Right. So value Jenny Clark. And uh, someone to stand up and salute on International Women's Day. One of the marine heroes. Indeed. Hey, we've uh, that's the end of our program for today. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Julie Monden from... Not Julie London, Julie Monden. Julie Monden from uh, Deakin University at Warrnambool. And uh, to Graham Patterson, uh, who's been talking to us about those coastal guides. We've had a call about that already. We'll put all those details on the Radio Marinara Facebook page, but also on the Triple R webpage. Uh, and Dr. Beach, thanks to Steve for coming in as well, Captain Winshift. That's right. Thanks to Captain Winshift. And, yeah, it's been a pleasure as always, and I shall see you next week. Thank you, Dr Beach. Thank you so much to Kent. He's been panelling for us today on the program next week. Mark Rodriguez is going to be in as well to talk about Festival of the Sea and Rex Hunter, our underwater <laughs> wreck. Rex. Rex. Enthusiast. And I think Angeline's coming in as well. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy and have a great long weekend, and we will catch you next Sunday. Bye for now. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.